let me read something to you out of God's Word that is not the narrative that we will preach from today, but I believe it is the passage of Scripture that right now at this moment God wants to use to speak to our hearts and our minds. I believe God has a specific word for such a time as this. This word will ultimately point us back to a narrative of scripture that we will eventually probably land in a little while from now. But I want you to lean in today. Lean in and find out what it is that God has for you. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, lean in. Look at your other neighbor and say, lean in. Look at somebody that you did not choose and say, it's not how, it's wow. Say it again. It's not how, it's wow. Let me read this to you. Don't turn there. It'll be on the screens. But Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes something. He says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again to make sure that you heard it. Rejoice. That's what the Bible says. I, I, that's not my word. Great, great for rejoicing. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now grab hold of this. Paul writes this from the confines of prison. And what he is telling us is that what is coming out of his spirit is greater than what is coming against his flesh. Hmm, Lord have mercy. But then in verses 5 and 6, he gives to us some instructions for our faith. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every, somebody say every, every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. He says, hold on a second, man, because this crowd wants to preach today. He's saying that if you'll live these things, then the product of your life will be verse 7. And the product of your life, he says this, and then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Can anybody rejoice in here for that kind of peace? Can somebody give God praise for a peace that surpasses all understanding? Have you ever experienced that peace in the midst of chaos, that peace in the midst of the storm, that peace in the midst of relational difficulty? Did somebody give him praise? Praise is about to break out, I believe. Hang on a second. Let me, let me pause here for a minute. Let me pause here for a second. Because what Paul is saying to us is that even though we don't understand, we can't wrap our brains around this peace, this peace can wrap itself around us. Paul is, is talking about this peace. That, it guards our hearts and our minds. It guards our hearts, which is our spirit. It guards our minds. How many of you know so goes the mind, so goes your life? Whatever controls your mind ultimately controls your life. I preached a message on this passage one time before many years ago. I wish I had more time to stay right here, but, but I don't. Let me give you one nugget. 
when Paul says that the peace that surpasses all understanding guards your hearts and your minds, the term guard is an incredible military term. It is so deep that it actually paints a picture for the reader to understand. And the picture for the word guard in the Greek actually means two soldiers standing outside of the gate of a city and no one can go into that city or come out of that city without their approval. Hold on a second. That means that there, there's gate guardians, the guardians of the gate. If you'll remember last week, we talked about Jehovah Rohi, the Lord is our shepherd. And then Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. Mm. Now here is Paul going to a whole nother level. He says that, that there are two Roman guards, if you will, kind of outside of the gate to the city and no one can come in or go out. No one can come in without permission and no one can leave without permission. But there's a heavenly authority that he's talking about that's outside of the gate to your heart and your mind and nothing can come in or out without its permission. I shouldn't say without its, it's without his permission. It's without the Holy Spirit's permission. You see, anxiety, you cannot come in. Oh Lord, but the peace that surpasses as all understanding can fear you cannot take up residence here because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world you see why because God did not give me the spirit of fear but of love power and a sound mind you may be saying hold on a second pastor Mark I'm coming unraveled with my financial difficulty well let me tell you something the Holy Spirit is standing at the gate swinging it open wide telling you today these words of affirmation I'm with you I'm for you I am your strength I am your help I am your refuge and when you begin to have peace in your heart your perspective will change here's the words of affirmation there is people around you right now who love you and you don't think that you're loved let me tell you something God loves you so much that he gave his only son and the reason why that you don't see it is because you've been trying to control the gate but let God have authorship of that gate. Come on, somebody, give him praise. There's peace in the house. Peace in the house. I want to know you. I want Somebody look at your neighbor right now and say, it's not how, it's wow. And grab a seat. Let me get into the message. Can we, can we go into the message? Okay, then take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 6. 17 of you, so excited about God's word. Judges chapter 6 is this narrative of scripture that illustrates for us this concept of when God is the guardian of your heart and your mind, he can walk you into your destiny. But when he's not the guardian of your heart and your mind, you can, you can be standing in the promise but not enjoying the fruit of it. 
Mm. So here's what happens in Judges chapter 6. Let's start in verse 13. Then we'll back up in a few minutes. But verse 13, Gideon says, pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord then in verse 14 turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have. Somebody say go. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Verse 15, pardon me, my Lord. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. How can I? How, 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 how? That word that just kind of takes up residence in our vocabulary. How, how can I do this? How can I fix this? How can I get past this? How, how, how can I find Mr. Wright when all I see is wrong? How? Do you know what it is that keeps you out of what God has for you? Think about this. In verse 13, God told Gideon to go in the strength that you have. But in verse 15, Gideon says, how? What is it that keeps you out of what God has for you? Well, I can tell you what it is. It's the question that's in verse 15. How? What is it that keeps you out of what God has for you? It's unbelief. So here, it's Gideon blaming the Midianites for his situation wondering where God's at in all of this. But can I tell you something? If God is the guardian of your heart and your mind, you cannot blame someone else for the situation in your life. Either God is the guardian or not. And if God is the guardian over your life, there is nothing that any Midianite, any problemite, any relationalite, any financialite, any cellulite can do to you to keep you out of what God has for you because God wants to do something in your life. Can somebody look at your neighbor and say, it's not how, it's wow. It's not how is this going to happen. It's wow. Look at who God is. It's not how is this going to happen. It's wow. Look at all that God has done. Because if you've been here for any period of time over the last few weeks, you realize that there is a name that is above every other name. There is a name that is above your problem. There is a name that is above your difficulty. There is a name that is above your situation. There is a name that is above your burden. And that name breaks the back of fear. That name rips the labels off of you that other people have placed upon you. That name makes a way when there seems to be no way. That name is above every other name. It causes all other names to pale in comparison. That name is God. That name is Jehovah. That name is Yahweh. That name is, that name is the Redeemer. That name is salvation. That name is the Ancient of Days. That name is the Father. That name is Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Jehovah Nisi, because he's my victory. Jehovah Rapha, he is my healer. Jehovah Ro he, he is my shepherd. That name is Jesus. That name is the King of Kings. That name is the Lord of Lords. That name is my healer. That name is my hope. Somebody praise that name.
want to stay in rhythm with this series and talk to you today about another name. This name shows up in verses 23 and 24. Look at it. Verses 23 and 24, here's what happens. It says, But the Lord said to him, Peace. Do not be afraid. Everybody say, Peace. You are not going to die. So Gideon, verse 24, he built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it, The Lord is Peace. Mm. To this day it stands at Oprah's house. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it, the Lord is peace. That term in the Hebrew, Darren, is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is my peace. Now, in I need to back up in this passage and give you some context as to why Gideon would have built this altar and called it Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is my peace. So let me take you back to verse 1. You see, because when verse 1 opens up, when the narrative begins to explode onto, onto the pages of the Bible, the people of Israel have experienced this 40-year period of peace. However, for the last seven years, there's been great difficulty. 40 years of peace and rest, but during that 40 years, their hearts began to migrate away from God because of the complacency in their lives. And so God allowed the Midianites to take bondage, to place into bondage the people of Israel, just so that he could draw them back to himself. So this narrative of Scripture is so powerful because it shows us how the grace of God works and how God can deliver us. But it also references something that we talked about earlier in this series, and that is this. Many times we associate conflict with the enemy and comfort with God, and that is true. But many, many times the enemy will make you so comfortable that God will use conflict in your life to draw you back to him. That is the narrative. That's what's happened. Now let me read you something. Watch this, it says in verse 1, it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord for seven years. He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Verse 7, or verse 2, Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Here is the Israelites who were promised a land that they are now dwelling in, but they are not living a civilized life any longer, but now they're cave dwellers. Something else happens in verses 3 and following. It says, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land in order to ravage it. Huh. Come out for a second because we need to see something that's happening here. 
the Midianites are not coming to the land of Canaan, to Israel, if you will, to occupy it. The Bible tells us very specifically that they come during a certain season. And they come during harvest, when, when all of, of, of the crops have been planted, and now what has been planted has come to full growth, that's when they come. Why? Because the Midianites are a warring people. They're a desert people. And this is a, a, a war strategy, if you will. They're cutting off the people of Israel from the very crops that they had planted. They're cutting them off from their food source in order to starve them. But here's something that you need to notice. The enemy did not keep them from planting. They were allowed to plant, if you will. The enemy didn't keep them from planting. The enemy just kept them away from accessing the things that they had planted. In fact, let me read it to you this way. This is what I wrote. Because there's such spiritual symbolism here. The enemy didn't stop them from planting. He just eliminated their ability to access what they had originally planted. Now grab this. The Bible doesn't say the land didn't produce. It says the enemy came and destroyed it. Are you grabbing this? Hold on a second. I'm not sure that you are. Because many, many, many years before this event, God had promised and prophesied over the land. He said, I'm going to give you a land and it will be flowing with milk and honey and it will be so fertile. The land is still fertile. The land is still producing. The problem is the enemy has blocked them from receiving what the land and what the promise is producing. Mm, you're not grabbing this. Hold on. In other words, the enemy cannot stop God from blessing you. But the enemy's strategy is to place you under such a spiritual siege that you cannot gain access to the very things that God is willing to supply. Therefore, the starvation in your life has less to do with God not supplying and more to do with your lack of, of obedience. And because you have not been obedient, you're not gaining access to the very things God is willing to give to you. Think about it. They're living in the promise and they're watching someone else devour it. It had to have been difficult to have been wandering around the desert for 40 years looking at the promise, looking at the promise, wanting the promise. But how much more difficult was it to be living in the promise, but living in a cave, standing at the entrance of the cave, watching the enemy devour the very thing that God had promised to you? Depression broke out, discouragement. And the Bible says that after seven years, they cried out to the Lord. Hmm. Prayer was not their first resort. It was their last. I, I, I wrote this. Prayer was their last resort instead of their first resource. Grab hold of that. Think about it in your life. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've heard someone say, well, bless God. I've done everything I know to do. All we can do is pray. By golly, all we can do is pray. We've done everything we know how to do. We put together a committee, and the committee didn't work. I Facebooked everything. I told everybody about my problems. I even got with the gossipers, and that didn't help at all. So by golly, Johnny, it's, we're going to have to just pray for Johnny. That's all we can do is if prayer is the last resort. 
Prayer is not the last resort. It's the first thing that we should do. Prayer is, not, prayer is not the last thing we can do. It is the best thing that we can do. Uh, uh, hold on a second. Hold on a second because I'm reminded of something. We started this out. This is God connecting the dots. In Philippians chapter 4, didn't Paul say that if you want to access peace, then you need to bathe your life in prayer? Didn't he say if you want to access peace, then you need to live in prayer? Didn't he say in every situation with prayer and petition, make your request known to God, and then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds? The problem is we all want the benefits of peace, but we're not willing to live the obligation of surrender. In order to experience it. Mm, grab that. We all want to experience that peace. But, but not necessarily surrender. Our lives. The obligation of surrender. In order to experience it. Huh. I don't know who this is for. But maybe you're wanting to experience more love. Can I tell you something? Everything in your life needs to be bathed in prayer. Why? Because God is the one who brings increase. And you're wanting to experience more love? Well, maybe God wants to do a work in you. Maybe you need to bathe your life in, in, in prayer so that God can do a work in your heart so that you can become a person who loves better. Mm. So the people are standing on the edge of the cliff, if you will, staring out the Midianites just ravaging the land and they cry out. And what does God do? Verse 7, look, look at it. It says, when the Israelites cried out the Lord to the Lord because of Midian, he sent to them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you. From the hand of the Egyptians, I delivered you from the hand of all of your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Hold on a second. What I love is that when they cried out after seven years, what did God do? God answered. It reminds me of the psalmist who writes, I cried out to the Lord and his ear was attentive to my cry and he came and he delivered me because he is an ever-present help in a time of need. So I look to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord so I cry out unto him and God will make a way where there seems to be no way. If I'll trust in him with all of my heart, lean not upon my own understanding, but in all of my ways acknowledge him. He'll make my paths straight. But notice something about this prophet when the prophet came. The prophet did not come giving to them this formula, this equation for their future. Notice it. He didn't come and talk about their future. Or did he? What he said was, did not the Lord do some things for you? Hold on a second. Rather than turning their attention to the future, he turned their attention to some things that God had already done. He caused them to reflect upon who God was in their lives. Did not God, did not God 
deliver you from the hands of the Egyptians? Was God not powerful enough to part the Red Seas and to cause you to walk across on dry ground? Did God not love you enough to deliver you into the land that is flowing with milk and honey? And, and did God not love you enough to drive out all of its inhabitants? So what the prophet is doing is reminding the people of Israel of the power of God and the love of God. And if God was powerful enough to free them from the hands of the Egyptians then, then he's powerful enough to free them from the hands of the Midianites now. If God was powerful enough to show them love then, to bring them into the promised land, then he's powerful enough now to quench those people who are coming against him so that they can experience the very promise that they're in. The principle that God is trying to show us here is... You cannot be so focused upon your current set of circumstances that you forget who has already delivered you. Oh, Lord. That you forget who has already delivered you. Do you know what keeps us out of wow? What keeps us out of wow is that we won't get how off of our tongue. Do you know what keeps us out of what's next? What keeps us out of what's next that God wants to give to us is that we forget what he did last. Mm. Lord have mercy. You see, I, I don't know why, but I feel in my spirit that there are some maybe in this place and you feel unworthy for what God has for you next based upon decisions that you have made, based upon a set of circumstances that the enemy has relegated you to a dry and, and, and weary land. But can I tell you something about God? The blessings of God are not predicated on your worthiness. The blessings of God are not predicated on whether or not you are perfect because you're not. The blessings of God are predicated upon the fact that you believe and where there is belief. God can do some incredible things. And for some of you, you need to get ready to stop saying how and convert your vocabulary to wow because God's going to do some incredible things in your life. Look at your neighbor and say, wow. I was thinking, how can I illustrate this? And I had this thought. Sometimes when I'm reading off of this back screen here, this television that's there. Everybody turn around and look at this television because I see people are already doing it. So let me help you. When I'm reading off, okay, turn back this way. Yeah, there you go. It's just a television. When I'm reading off of that television, sometimes the letters can be really small. Sometimes they're distorted. Say a thing. When I'm tired, I've noticed that it's worse. So a little over a year ago, I went to the eye doctor and found out that I have something called an astigmatism, which is a deviation, if you will, in the spherical shape of the eyeball, which causes the images that you see to be distorted. It normally happens with AIDS. That's why I don't understand why I have this. <laughs> I'm just saying, just saying. Hmm. And when I look at things, sometimes I can't read those things. So the doctor said, okay, I need to give you 
glasses. You need to, here's your prescription for glasses. I never filled the prescription. I'm waiting on Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. <laughs> and every week I tell them to make the letters a little bigger. <laughs> the point that I'm trying to make with this is, is there's a spiritual connection here. The image is a little distorted. And I begin to think, hold on, many of us have a, a, a spiritual astigmatism. The things that God has for you are distorted images that you can't necessarily make out. And the reason why you can't necessarily make them out is because you've lost focus of everything that God has already done for you. And when you begin to realize everything that God has already done for you, it begins to refine your vision so that you can see all that God wants to do for you. Mm, Lord have mercy. So, so you can stand at the entrance of that cave and you can see all the people eating the produce of the land. Or you can stand at the edge of that cave and begin to cry out to God and say, God, hold on a second. I remember when you did this and you did this and you did this and you did this and you did this. And all of a sudden, your, your fear begins to diminish. Your faith begins to be enhanced. And now you're not only praising God for what he did, you're beginning to praise God for what he's about to do. Because now, all of a sudden, you can see with clarity what he's about to do. Where are we at? Verse, verse what? Verse what? Somebody tell me. Y'all ain't even paying attention. I don't know. Hold on a second. Okay, so verse 7, okay, I read through 10. Okay, we're on verse 11. Thank you for paying attention. It says, the angel of the Lord, I'm going to read it right here because these words are closer to me. <laughs> the, an the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah. It belonged to Joash the Abizarite and the son of Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior, you. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. This is a contradiction in terms. If you understand about the wine press, the wine press was an apparatus, a wooden apparatus that was built into the to the ground so the top of it was pretty much flush with the ground you would put the grapes in the wine press and you would begin to press them in order to make wine so you're underneath the, the, the level of the soil if you will Jonathan you know grab this if you were threshing wheat you would generally go to the highest location where the wind would blow off of the hillside you would throw the wheat into the air the wind would grab the trash and the wheat would fall to the ground why is he not threshing wheat where you're supposed to thresh wheat? Can I tell you why? Because he's afraid the Midianites will see him and they'll take what he has. But God calls him a mighty warrior. <laughs> hmm. Time out for a second because sometimes the very promise that God has given you will cause others to resent you. They'll say things about you, talk about you, do things to you. But can I tell you something? That's the reason why God has chosen you, selected you. He's going to use you because he's going to do things in your life and build a platform in your life that will cause him to be glorified by everything that's going on in your life. With Gideon, though, at this moment in time, he's living according to fear, the spirit of, of fear. 
And when you live according to the spirit of fear, you're going to have a different perspective. You're going to be so focused on your problem rather than reflecting upon all that God has done. But when you begin to reflect upon what God has done, it enhances your faith. It squashes fear. But right now, Gideon doesn't see himself as a mighty warrior. Let me finish reading. Verse 13, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replies, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this stuff happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our ancestors told us about? And when, when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? He says, pardon me, Lord. But How? How can I save Israel? I'm the weakest in my clan, and my tribe is the weakest of all. How, how can I do that, Lord? <laughs> but remember, he said, go in the strength that you have. Go in the strength that you have. Go in the strength that you have. But hold on a second. Let me read something to you that a theologian wrote. He said this, Gideon had the strength of the humble. Threshing wheat on the wine-pressed floor. Gideon had the strength of caring because he cared about the low place of Israel. Gideon had the strength of knowledge because he knew God did great things in the past. Gideon had the strength of spiritually being hungry because he wanted to see God do great works again. Gideon has the strength of the teachable because he listened to what the angel of the Lord said. Gideon had the strength of the weak, and God's strength is perfected in weakness. Ho, 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 ho. Not to shout down your praise there for a minute, but this theologian is saying when God told him to go in the strength that you have, the strength that he was highlighting were those things. Well, well, this guy is so much more intelligent than I am, but I respectfully disagree with him. And here's why. Because if that were the case, go in the strength that you have, and all of those strengths were listed why did he follow it up in verse 15 and say, but how? How? Obviously, that's not his strength. How can I? I'm the weakest amongst everyone. How? 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 Hold on a second. Verse 16 is where the strength comes from. Verse 16 said, the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all of the Midianites, leaving none alive. Hold on a second. I don't know if you're putting this together yet. But do you remember when they cried out, God provided the prophet, and the prophet came and reminded them of everything that God had done? At that moment, Gideon realized that they have never been alone, that God has always been with them, and their strength is in the truth that God is always with them. And now God is reminding him again for the second time, if, 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 if I'm with you, then who's going to be against you? He's reminding him again in verse 16, am I not with you? Am I not sending you? So his victory was not in all of the attributes that were listed. His victory was in the fact that God was with him and for him, and that God was his, his Jehovah Shalom, the peace over him. I'm not saying that he did not possess all of those other qualities, but those qualities is not where his strength came from. When he said, go in the strength that you have, he's saying, go in the fact and the truth that I am with you and I am for you. The same way that I was for Moses, I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And even though you've been going through all of that, you need to understand all that I've already done is going to pale in comparison to all that I'm about to do in your life. Hold on a second. Look at, look at um, 
verses 17 and following. It says, Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you that I'm talking to. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat from an ephah and, and, and flour that he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that he was, had in his hand. And fire flared from the rock and consumed the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid, for you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there, and he called it Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is my peace. What, what Gideon was saying is that we may be in this situation, but we're not going to be here long. We're not going to continue to live in these caves because peace is about to flood my life. My kids are not going to have to live according to this oppression. This problem is not going to get the best of me. This difficulty Difficulty will never define me, but my destiny will be defined by the Lord because he is Jehovah Shalom. And the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but God has come so that I may have life and have it more abundantly. Somebody in this place begin to proclaim, wow, it's not how, it's wow, it's not how, it's wow. Look what God has done. Somebody give him praise. very next chapter Gideon took 300 men against 135,000 Midianites the Bible says that he went up on the hillside around the valley where all of the Midianites were sleeping he gave them candles put those candles lights if you will in big huge glass jars and he said on my shout on my command do what I do and he broke the jars above all of these Midianites who were sleeping and, and 300 jars when they broke it made such a loud sound that it scared the Midianites so bad that they grabbed their swords and started fighting one another in the dark and they killed one another listen let me tell you something when the enemy hears the fact, the truth, I should say that you're willing to give God praise, come out of the cave and say he is my peace. He'll guard my heart. He'll guard my mind. The enemy will flee from you. Why? Because there is no weapon that is formed against you that shall prosper. Why? Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Somebody needs to understand that it's not how. It is wow. It is wow. It is wow. It is wow. 